John Backer of my time in J-Tree was Michael Reardon. Reardon had the look of an 80s hairband rocker with wild golden blonde hair and deep blue eyes that were like looking into a clear mountain lake. Reardon was not only around, he was everywhere. He soloed everything that Backer could and then ushered in a new level with Equinox, a 513 finger crack, and many other standard setting climbs. He loved Backer and even made a movie about him. They grew into a friendship of mutual admiration and respect. I was getting more comfortable with my soloing, but I could only live in imagination and try to grasp what it felt like to be at the top of the free solo game. To have 80 feet of air beneath you with only your fingertips in a crack and your feet delicately pasted on the wall, knowing that's all between you and certain death. It must be exhilarating beyond description. God damn, that's gotta be like the first high from a serious drug or a bird flying. How could we mere mortals understand the joys that climbing gods experience? Welcome to episode 12 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and we are still in American Climber, my 2016 memoir. This episode is brought to you by Sticker Art. You can find them at stickerart.com, and they are based out of here in Durango, Colorado. And at Sticker Art, every sticker tells a story. Be sure to check them out and at checkout, enter the coupon code DIRTBAG and that'll get you 20% off. You can support the climbing zine at the various links in our show notes. We've got a Patreon account. And as I always say, the number one way to support the climbing zine is to subscribe. And like I said, the links are in our show notes and you can also visit us on Instagram at the link in our bio. And let's get back into it. For my climbers, for my dirtbags, and for the people who want to be dirtbag climbers, this is episode 12 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. It was an ecstatic relief to be wearing a tank top in the winter. My skin tanned and blessed from getting touched by the California sun. I felt like I'd gotten away with something, like I'd escaped the cold and found my haven for the winter. I found one of my first climbing partners and one of the few women I'd met around, a cook I worked with. She was a beautiful Asian woman who graduated from Yale and had a yearning just to be a climber in California. Damn, did I respect that. She had a boyfriend, but she was still looking for climbing partners, so we teamed up now and again. At work, we initially developed the camaraderie between cook and dishwasher that is often hard to obtain. My street cred as a climber gave me a fast track to being accepted at the restaurant. Two other cooks, local boys from the town of Joshua Tree, which was the smallest town I'd ever lived in, were stoner dudes who were curious about climbing. One had just spent time in prison, and he had used hard drugs, but he was now clean from all that and had a glimmer of hope. Another was younger and had that look in his eye that maybe he wanted something different in life and just the day-to-day motions of eat, work, sleep, repeat. The head cook was the co-owner who owned the joint with her mother, Now, I've seen and heard some shit in the back of kitchens. You want to talk about a place with a lack of filter for language? It's a kitchen hidden away from the customers. But I've never heard a mouth like the one the daughter had. She cussed and yelled so frequently, I think that everyone, including myself, was scared of her in a little certain way. 
But no matter how deep and profane her language was, she never talked to me directly in that way, and we maintained sweet relations. So just like that, in a couple weeks, I had a community of sorts, at least a few people who knew my name and could recognize me. That was a huge relief, because I think I had a deep fear of being swallowed by the vast loneliness of modern life. Being in this new, strange place, all alone, without a clue to where I was going with my life. But sometimes, it's not about where you're going, it's about where you are. Too Strong Dave was another character that came into my life, and how couldn't he? He was a local guy, always posted up at the bar in the cafe. His arms were like cannons. Apparently he was an arm wrestling champion. He was intimidating, but he was a climber, and usually great climbers are also great men. After two weeks of recognizing that I wasn't just there for a short time, he opened up and started asking me what I'd climbed that day. When I would tell him I was working on something like Spiderline, an 11C that looks like a 5'9", he would have some spot-on comment about the delicate nature of the line, or exactly how difficult the crux was. He was a walking, talking guidebook, and by identifying that I was the new guy on the scene, which was humbly going through the grades in the classics, he was part of my quest to experience Joshua Tree. My lineup of climbing partners was very much lacking, and I solicited people from camp, as often happens in places like J-Tree. It was like the danger of taking a girl you didn't know home from the bar. One guy I'd climb with told me he'd finally recover from a broken leg he'd obtained in a climbing fall. When we climbed, he promptly smoked a bowl and then tried to lead Tex Man, a tricky 10A, and shaked his way up it, scaring the shit out of me. His erratic movement and lack of confidence was a buzzkill and I found a way to act like I had something else to do for the rest of the day. One of my regular climbing partners was a bitter British guy, who was always uttering and mumbling negative statements about everything. He was a friend by default, by association, because we ended up camping next to one another, and we were both climbers, looking for someone to climb with. I liked him. Deep down he was a good guy, but my sensitive and delicate nature could not handle such negativity. He even would complain about how short and stupid the climbs were in J-Tree, which is a commonly uttered statement. Not everyone finds the same beauty in the same things, but when he left camp, I vowed to only surround myself with positive people. And as the weeks passed, and I passed my 14-day limit, I stayed anyways. I would have requested a late checkout, but there was no one to call. I wrote these words in a sharpie on my sleeping pad. I am somewhere between the 14-day camping limit and living the dream. Positivity was part of the equation. It is perhaps one of the most important ingredients in a healthy climbing life. But I was lonely, and I knew it. I wanted the comfort of a woman, but there were very few around, and I still lacked having much game. Sure, I attracted women in Gunnison, but those women who knew me and knew my backstory, I was someone there, but I was no one in J-Tree, just a dude who had no money and washed dishes and climbed rocks. And therein laid my problem. I didn't have intention or specific goals. I was just there floating. Now I know the truth. Life is like a river you're going down, quickly and swiftly, like a spring runoff. If you take a second and scope that river out to see where you're going and where the obstacles are, you'll be better off. Life is like that river. And though there are so many unpredictable aspects of life, the shape that a life takes and the stages of that life are predictable. I knew I was blessed with the opportunity to live a good life in America. Perhaps I knew it too much, because I was willing to live with such little money, it astounded everyone back home in Illinois. 
I figured money would always be there, and I could simply work and earn if I really needed to. And that is a blessing, a confidence that the man who never had any money could never have. The why I was there, I could have never understood at the time. I wanted to climb would have been my answer. The weekend warriors who frequented J-Tree would be jealous of me when I told them how long I was staying for. The weekend warriors who frequented J-Tree would always be jealous of me when I told them how long I was staying for. That would immediately make them think of work on Monday, and they would think of me climbing on Monday. I would carry that aura of living the dream in our conversation. But it was an illusion. There was just so much that was missing. If it really came down to it, I was as jealous of these people as they were of me. Jealous of their significant others, their stability, their jobs. Well, maybe not their jobs, but I was jealous that they had a life plan set into action. And therein lived my battle, my struggle. I was out in Joshua Tree because after 18 years of schooling, I still didn't know what I wanted to do for a career. I didn't want to fight, I didn't want to teach, I didn't want to research, and I didn't want to study in a classroom anymore. I felt like I was given a world opportunity, and I still pass on every opportunity except that opportunity to climb rocks and live outside. And even that was illegal. People could rape and pillage nature and build second home mansions on top of rocks legally, but for little old me to live in a tent on public lands amongst the rocks was illegal. It gave me a challenge, though, living in my tent there. I studied the rangers and their habits, and they were so predictable. They did their rounds at the same time every morning, so all I had to do was move my car to the day use area, and they wouldn't recognize it or record my license plate to notice the number of days I was in the campground. It was fun, and when other people got busted for overstaying and had to leave, I was proud of my ways. I would climb on the rocks behind camp when the rangers did their patrol and watch them, like the rocks protected me and the place I'd chosen to call my home for the season. Some of the folks who had been kicked out of there still returned, like this girl they called the mayor, a hippie girl who barely climbed. She had dreads and rarely showered, and she oozed California hippie. Then, I was slowly starting to become more civilized, showering more and keeping my hair cut to a buzz, and I was less and less into the hippie culture of how I dressed and presented my looks. But the hippie culture should, and I hope always will, be ingrained into American culture. Because with the intentions, hippies represent everything good about America, and they balance out the war cries and our industrial nature that's out to conquer the world. The hippie says conquer yourself and nothing else, and so does the dirtbag, in her or his own way. The mayor returned again and again, and got kicked out again and again. She was a rebel, even if her only cause was to live a peaceful, simple life in J-Tree. I'd say that's a rebel with a righteous cause. To live this life, there were customs and practices that had been developed over time since the first hippies descended on J-Tree, in numbers large enough to make them a force to be reckoned with. I knew the story, the history, we all did. California's climbing history is better documented than the other aspects of American climbing. One of those rituals in J-Tree was to free solo. J-Tree has its funk, its uniqueness that is so strong, it repels the climber not able to appreciate its flavor but leaves another sort of climber to be entranced with the lifestyle that he or she falls in love with it. I was certainly of the latter. As lost as I was, I was in love. 
I'd done some free solo climbing before J-Tree, but they were angsty endeavors. I would be fed up with school and tired of studying and sitting, and I didn't have a partner, so I'd head out to Taylor Canyon and climb up some 5.6s and 5.7s until my mind calmed down. They were moderate climbs, but if I would have fallen, I would have died. One day, I was forced to down-climb 100 feet of 5.6 and pretty much scared the shit out of myself enough to realize that free soloing wasn't for me. My ADD mind could create a hyper-focus in most dangerous climbing situations, but free soloing was not one of them. At least not for 200 or more feet. Perhaps it was my inner voice saying, this is stupid, get back to the ground and get a rope. In J-Tree, it's different. There are many just downright fantastic 5.4s, 5.5s, and 5.6s that can be soloed. They have hand jams so good, they basically swallow your body. It would be nearly impossible to fall off of some of them. Plus, many are a minute from camp. They practically beg you to climb them. And so I would. And so would many of the other climbers from camp. It became a ritual of sorts. Climb on ropes all day, then finish up with a solo at the top of some dome. Watch the sunset, drink a beer, take a puff, and then scurry back down. These were the leisure solos, and then there were the hardcores. It all began in the era of my literary hero, John Long, in the 1970s. Like Too Strong Dave, Long didn't have the typical super lean build that most strong climbers had. He had the looks of a bodybuilder. Long could and can write like a bird flies, the wind blows, and a climber climbs. His stories of the original hard free solos in J-Tree are legends. He started it off, but quickly passed the torch to John Backer, an original stone master who took free soloing to a higher level than anyone down in Southern California. The images of Backer climbing stunning lines in J-Tree that many of us could barely do with a rope makes the mind spin like, what? How could he? The John Backer of my time in J-Tree was Michael Reardon. Reardon had the look of an 80s hairband rocker with wild golden blonde hair and deep blue eyes. Reardon was not only around, he was everywhere. He soloed everything Backer could and then ushered in a new level with Equinox, a 513 finger crack. He loved Backer and even made a movie about him. They grew into a friendship of mutual admiration and respect. I was getting more comfortable with my soloing, but I could only live in imagination and try to grasp what it felt like to be at the top of the free solo game. To have 80 feet of air below you with only your fingertips in a crack and your feet delicately on the wall, knowing that's all that's between you and certain death or worse must be exhilarating beyond description. Goddamn, that's gotta be like the first high from a serious drug or like a bird flying. How could we mere mortals understand the joys that climbing gods experience? I guess these guys were bigger than life. Shortly after my J-Tree season, Backer died in a free solo accident near Mammoth, California. And shortly after that, Reardon died in Ireland, swept away by a rogue wave after he had free soloed some sea cliffs. Maybe they rolled the dice one too many times, or God just had other plans for their energy that could not be contained in a human body. John Long, too, came crashing down to the earth in an accident, in the climbing gym of all places, after he failed to fully tie his bowline knot properly. Luckily, he survived with only a broken leg, while the world will never again see these three in J-Tree confidently soloing steep terrain, engaged in an ecstasy and of confidence that few ever will, I know for sure the legends are alive in campfire stories and a select breed is following in their footsteps. I had a couple soloing moments in J-Tree that I clearly remember. 
The first was a 5'9 hand crack right in the campground. I climbed it a week before and it had very sharp edges in the crack. Jaytree is famous for its razor sharp edges. Because I couldn't decide whether I wanted to face the left side of my body in the dihedral or the right side, it seemed awkward. But one day I was climbing on intersection rock and I was just looking over there, staring at it. I felt calm and in the moment. So when we were done climbing over there, I stood under it and thought about whether I should solo it. And I did. I started up with the feelings of nervousness and freedom intertwined. Once I started climbing, the jam seemed to swallow my hands and it felt easier than when I had a rack of gear and a rope. There was nothing to weigh me down, nothing to make it awkward when shifting around in the crack. Forty feet up, when you're entering a zone where life as you know it would be over if you fell, was the best moment. Endorphins and adrenaline released. A feeling of strength and peace overcame me. I could see how that process would be addicting. I drove into work that evening on a high, blasting Hendrix from the car stereo. I saw J-Tree from the lens of a climber, the climber who washed dishes, living hand to mouth. When I arrived at the restaurant, a pile of 30 bacon trays from the morning awaited me. Any high I was riding had to face that. Plus, I was a college graduate, and what I was doing for a living, after all that money spent on education, was one of the most basic jobs out there. Then I'd look around, and most of the clientele were climbers, and the cook just across the kitchen was a graduate from Yale, so I felt a little more at peace. And then I'd leave with leftovers that would fuel the fire to climb for another day. The clientele, the people, they had everything I needed. And I felt that way for some time now. That all I need is the simple life of climbing and good people. And there are a lot of good people. But our lives are made up of our people. Those who speak the same language. And not just the English language or the talk of climbers. But the language of the heart. What the heart wants and what you want out of your life. Whenever I was washing dishes, I would always look out and scan the crowd and go out and talk to someone if I knew them. Sometimes I'd just see a table and I could tell they were talking about a specific climb because someone was acting out the moves, miming them, with hands in the air, even a knee raised to accentuate the foot movement, facial expressions awash in the magic that is climbing. There was as much weirdness as there was magic. The crew then, the hippies, liked to throw naked parties. Seemed very California. They invited me to one in town, and I went over there fully clothed. There was like one naked chick and 15 dudes. I did not stay that long. A couple weeks later, they'd arrange another naked party, a disco dance party on top of the blob, a formation right there in camp that had some super fun, easy hand cracks leading to the top. It was a ritual to climb up there, to watch the sunset, or take a quick lap while people were lounging around in the heat of the day. I found about the Naked Disco Dance Party by social media, the original social media. The mayor and some hippie dudes were walking around camp yelling, Disco Dance Party on the Blob tonight! B-Y-O-B! And then the mayor said, And it's a Naked Disco Dance Party! And then one of the guys said, Don't advertise that, you'll just attract more dudes! I knew there would be a lot of dudes judging from the nature of the culture, there and then, so the party was hardly intriguing. Plus, the next day, I had plans to get a lot of climbing in, and I knew that would never happen if I partied into the night. I did find the crew interesting, though. I don't know if they knew I was a writer. Shit, I didn't even really know if I was a writer then. But I knew they were muses in many ways. They were dirtbag rebels, for sure. They messed with tourists, were loud at night, and free-soloed in costumes. 
They were everything climbers were in the J-Tree golden age of the 70s. One of their antics I found amusing was RV surfing. An RV would inevitably roll through camp trying to find a site, and almost always the sites were full of dirtbag climbers, so they had to continue elsewhere to find a site. Their huge RVs seemed out of place in the little dirtbag climber camp haven. And all the comforts that go along with that lifestyle. The drivers perched high above, gazed out into camp to see all these dirtbag climbers, and probably realized this was not the camp for them. And just as that would happen, someone would decide to RV surf. They climbed up the ladder on the back, bonus points if they were naked, of course, and stood proudly on top of the RV, basking in cheers from their watching friends. My camp was just down the way from theirs, so I'd catch the cheers first, and then look up to see their ass cheeks, and a naked dude in broad daylight, standing atop some RV with a name like The Explorer, and I had to laugh. They were raw, silly, and ambitious without much direction. I liked them. I still didn't want to go to the disco party. I wanted to sleep. But when the time came around for sleep, I'd already had a nightcap, brushed my teeth, said my prayers, and was reading to fall asleep. But the party got louder and louder. And I had no choice but to follow the statement, if you can't beat him, join him. I stumbled out of my tent and thought about how many beers I had in my cooler, followed by, what should I wear? Wait, it's a naked party. I don't have to worry about that. And I stumbled more to the glowing lights atop the blob. As I moved around in the bushes at the base of the blob, I heard other rustling. There were two other people, a guy from Switzerland and another guy with a backpack full of beer. The guy with the backpack full of beer looked quite clueless on how he was going to get to the party. He offered me some beers if I would help him get up there. I shined my headlamp on the wall, and we traversed around to an easy hand crack. I started up, the jam so good they swallowed my hand, and it was like an anchor, ensuring that I wouldn't fall 50 feet below to the talus. The backpack full of beer guy is behind me, and he starts to make some odd noises. I mean, this crack was as easy as they come. I yelled down to make sure everything was okay. Yeah, I'm fine, he assured me. Uh, But the problem is, uh, I've never actually climbed before, he said. Holy fuck, I thought to myself. I can't be responsible for this. I have to talk him out of it. So I gently and quietly told him that he should probably retreat. He did, and thankfully didn't crash down to the earth, ending his life and surely ending the party. I climbed up, the ground not visible because of the dark. The top was lit up with hues of neon green, red, and blue that were permeating from the summit. Naked hippies atop a rock with disco music and the stars for a ceiling. My primal instinct scanned the crowd. There were three women. Not bad. Better than one. A big dreadlock man looked at me and said, Welcome. The mayor was there, twirling these balls that changed colors from red to green to purple. It actually felt a little magical up there. She quietly suggested that I get naked, and so I did. The sensation was somewhere between liberation and curiosity. I wouldn't have been up there if they hadn't kept me awake. But now that I was, it was a sight to behold. The underground culture of J-Tree and their element. We danced to disco music, uninhibited, bottles and joints were passed. This was just the beginning. After the enjoyment of dancing naked on top of the granite dome passed, a suggestion was made. Let's do the chasm. I'd heard about this chasm, a long series of chimneys and tunnels, usually saved for debaucherous situations like this one. Headlamps were considered cheating, 
Sobriety, too. So a dozen or so of us retreated from the blob, everyone headed in different directions. We all ended up at a biker dude's campsite. One was recovering from a crash. They liked the craziness in attendance, if nothing else, to accompany their whiskey drinking. One guy was now wearing a bunny suit. Some fire torches came out of nowhere. Soon, the guy in the bunny suit was leading ten naked people, and me, through camp. I was clothed because I didn't want to get arrested for public indecency in a national park. I was willing to take calculated risks for breaking rules, but this one was way out of my comfort zone. Someone questioned why I had my clothes on. This event needs to be recorded, I claimed, and I was thinking that if a ranger shows up, I'll be happy to have something on. Well, if there's one thing we learned from Hunter S. Thompson, it was to participate, he answered. Naked again, I entered a chimney, burrowing into a granite cliff away from the moonlight into pure darkness. The chasm of doom, someone yelled, words echoing through the cave. Move by move, Beta was shared through the chimney, climbers tunneling, squeezing, and downclimbing. We passed a half an hour with no headlamps, only the shared word from above in the long tunnel, up and then down through the granite rock. I wondered, where are we going? And then we emerged at a ledge, exposed and interwoven in a granite world, one where the stars were comforting. A group of tattooed, naked climbers, smoke poured from their mouths, and cold air blew on their skin. We looked out on the endless granite and Joshua trees, each in their own shape, with every limb going in its own direction, barely visible by the moonlight. Down climbing the chasm was horrible. Scraping skin, claustrophobic thoughts in the dark world. My mood lightened for a second when someone said, Watch your package here. Just when I'd had enough, there's an opening. The sand, the boulders the cactuses, the horizontal world. We ran on the road again, back to camp, no cars, only the pat of bare feet on pavement, inhalations and exhalations. The bunny led, fire torches behind him. If the law were to drive by, it could be bad. We arrived in camp. The crew, through inspiration or annoyance, invited me into their group. I looked up to the blob. Granite clearly lit up by the moon is stunning. Camp was completely quiet now. My tent, weathered badly by the wind, poles sticking through the nylon, begged me to enter to another dream. There were more weeks of desert dreaming, and then I was completely burnt out. Worn ragged by the wind, granite, and the tent living, I knew there was only one place I wanted to be, the Gunnison Valley. With the swaying Joshua trees in the rearview mirror, I headed back home to Colorado. Still ragged, I had only a couple weeks before a double marathon of driving. I had a wedding for my dear friends in Austin, Texas, and then I would drive home to see my parents. Whenever I'd be on the road, I would rarely meet single women, so that's exactly what was on my mind when I returned to Gunny. And just before driving south down to Texas, I met one, a sweet redhead college student, shy as could be, but possessing the attraction that no logic could explain. So I did my epic drive down south to Texas, where they love everything big, and my friends wed in a wonderful ceremony, and I wondered when I would find my soulmate, whom I would marry. Then, in Illinois, I visited my family. My dad was cleaning out my car a bit. It needed it because, after all, I'd been living out of it for months on end. He opened up the trunk and pulled back the layer before the spare tire. He was amazed at what he found, and so was I. A bag of beans from Mexico had slipped back there, and so had some dirt from God knows where. Somehow, some way, the beans had sprouted and were growing in the dirt. 
Yes, my dirtbag mobile that I got for a thousand bucks. It was not only a good deal, but it was fertile. And it did just fine across the Midwest and during the painful flatness and the boredom that is Kansas. And finally, finally, taking my weary bones back home to Gunny. Right, that is episode 12 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal. Fun to relive those memories there. And, you know, it's interesting thinking about, you know, my search for love and just the loneliness of the dirtbag climber lifestyle, especially when there weren't as many women around. I think it's a, a much better mix of people <laughs> in climbing now than it was. Even just, uh, you know, that wasn't that long ago. That was probably only 12 or 13 years ago maybe 14 years ago, maybe 15. Damn. Um, but you know, I, I wax poetic about, you know, my friends are getting married and then when, when will I meet my soulmate? And I did meet my soulmate, um, only in, in the last three or four years. And everyone I know who got married young is now divorced. And so I think there's a cautionary tale in that and just romanticizing how, other people's lives or relationships might look like from the outside and you might think they have everything and then some time goes by and sometimes you realize that was just a a fallacy and and everyone is just going through life and and life is hard for everyone and but yeah just some words of wisdom for my young dirtbag climbers out there anyone who's maybe feeling lost um, or feeling alone I don't know what the true lesson in that is but I think a big part of it is just appreciate the moment, appreciate what you have now, and just enjoy your life. You can support this podcast with all our links in the show notes or visiting the link in our bio on Instagram. Music tracks come courtesy of Ketza and Simon Panrucker. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. For the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the climbing zine, I'm Luke Mihal coming at you from Durango. Colorado.